0: If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 19. We'll be reading verses 15 through 21. More than one witness, verse 15, was necessary to convict a person of a crime. This principle was to act as a safeguard against the false witness who might bring an untruthful charge against a fellow israelite by requiring more than one witness greater accuracy and objectivity was gained deuteronomy 17:6 matthew 18:15 through 17 in some cases verses 16 through 19 there would be only one witness who would bring a charge against someone When such a case was taken to the central tribunal of the priest and judges for trial and and upon investigation, the testimony of the witness was found to be false. The accuser received the punishment appropriate for the alleged crime. When the fate of the the false witness became known in Israel, verse 20, it would serve as a deterrent against giving false witness in Israel's courts. This principle of legal justice, verse 21, also called lex talianis, or law of of retaliation, was given to encourage appropriate punishment of a criminal in cases where there might be a tendency to be either too lenient or too strict. Exodus 21, 23, and 24 Leviticus 24.20 Jesus confronted the Jews of his day for taking this law out of the courts and using it for the purposes of personal vengeance. Matthew 5.38-42 through 42. We'll begin reading now at Deuteronomy chapter 19, beginning at verse 15. This is God's word. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in the office of those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then he shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall bear, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. It shall be a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13. All of 1 Corinthians 5 is devoted to the problem of immorality in the church, much of it specifically to sexual immorality. As serious as the immorality itself was the church's tolerance of it. Probably because of their philosophical orientation and their love of human wisdom, they rationalized the immoral behavior of their fellow believers. In any case, they were not inclined to take corrective actions or measures. Even those who were not involved in immorality had become arrogant about the matter. Verse 2, possibly citing their freedom in Christ, as do many believers today. Apparently, there were many who arrogantly flaunted their vice in the church. The chapter is not directed at the believers, or so-called believers, verse 11, who were committing the sins, but at the rest of the church who stood by doing nothing about it. In fact, arrogantly refusing to do anything about it. From chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 4, verse 21, Paul has been dealing with the more philosophical and psychological types of sin the sins of intellect and attitude. The division in the church was primarily caused by party spirit, seen in its numerous exclusive groups, with each group considering itself to have the inside track on spirituality. Chapter 5, however, focuses primarily on sins of the flesh, but those sins are not unrelated to those of the mind and heart because all sin is related. Sin in one area always makes us more susceptible to sin in other areas. In our own day, the rise in sexual sins and sins of violence closely parallel the rise in humanistic education and amoral philosophy and correspond to an increase in the pride and self-satisfaction and a decreased concern for the things of God. Paul's thrust in this chapter is for discipline of persistently sinning church members. He presents the need, the method, the reason, and the sphere of the discipline that should be imposed. We we'll begin reading at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his wife's father's wife. And you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a rivaler, a drunkard or a swindler not even to eat with such a one. What I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil from among you. Amen. And
1: open your Bibles to the final chapter in Second Corinthians. I mentioned last week, this will be the last message that i planned um, out of this this epistle. I'd like to say that in the the 30 years, and I'm in that 30th year now that I've pastored, uh, this is the hardest book I've ever preached through. There's a reason it took 30 years to get here, too, because it didn't surprise me that it was a difficult book to preach through. The problem with the book, of course, is very personal. It, it's it's speaking about churches that we've been part of, that we have been, that we in a sense are, that we could likely become. It speaks it speaks of people you know, people that you've been, people that you are, people that you could become. It's it, that's that's the problem. This is a very very perceptive book and we've come a lot further than you think it seems ages ago we were in 1 Corinthians 5 and yet Paul is going to almost in a sense return to remind people of that in this closing chapter and yet Paul loves these people I mean he despite all the things he's had to deal with and the fact that most of the time it didn't work and they rejected him and more and more and more. He's, he's concerned that everything's just going to fall apart. And, and given what we know about the church in Corinth after, let's say, the first century, it did fall apart. I mean, everything poured into it and all the possibilities kind of did fall apart. It's, it's not one of those great and noble churches. In fact, there really aren't any of those, you know. I mean, Ephesus probably hangs around as long as anyone and has some phenomenal preachers. But by the time you get to Revelation 2 and 3, it's, it's lost its first love and there's real challenges there. Our text this morning is but three paragraphs. Paragraphs. It concludes with a, with a benediction that I trust is very familiar to you. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the gift of your unchanging word. We thank you for its power. Its power to, to grant life by planting the seed of life within us under the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that in hearing your word and, and being brought to the place where we believe your word, we, we are regenerated. We're brought from death to life. And in that new life, we see you as you are a God of grace and mercy, a God of love. Not a harsh and judgmental God intent on depriving us of anything but in granting us what is better than anything we can imagine. Lord, we come to you today and as, we, as we conclude this, this magnificent set of epistles with thankfulness, but also with expectation that there is so much more to understand and apply as we live the Christian life together. We thank you for this gathering of saints this morning before this text. And we ask you to enlighten our spiritual understanding that we may grow in our faith and be better representatives of you as we bear your name before a watching world. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. The first paragraph, which is only a couple of verses here, is addressed at Paul's adversaries in Corinth, and the adversaries are the ones that he rather mockingly refers to as the super apostles. These are the guys that came in, likely from outside, with letters of recommendation and degrees to hang upon the wall, and vast experience at moving crowds emotionally. Uh, they were eloquent. They appeared to be very learned. They they didn't necessarily have a great grasp of the gospel, but that didn't make much difference because they were really good at moving people and stirring things up. They were entertaining, let's say. You would recognize the type. Part, of course, of building up their own ministry was casting aspersions upon the Apostle Paul's ministry. Um, perhaps, as we covered last week, even questioning his motives. That even even, even when he When he when he doesn't take support from the church to spend 18 months here with us, or or doesn't ask us to pay his expenses as he continues on to Macedonia, or even to Ephesus, or even to Jerusalem, what he's really after is that great collection that's down the road somewhere. It's just a matter of time before he runs off with a whole pile of money. That sort of thing seems to be going on. And of course, because men know their own hearts are somewhat deceptive, and they know On certain circumstances, they couldn't be trusted either. They're pretty quick to believe other men are even more so. And so, they're undermining Paul. They're undermining his authority. They're undermining his message. They're undermining the gospel, and they're doing it in the church in Corinth. So Paul writes to them in verse 1 and says, This is the third time I'm coming to you. And when I get there, he says every charge, which means, of course, there's more more than one charge being leveled against Paul. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, where did he get that? Brother Waltz already told us where he got that. Deuteronomy 19.15 is where the Lord just lays this out pretty clear. One person... Shouldn't bear that much weight, and if he's doing it, and he's doing it out of malicious, if he's doing it just because he's, to, to get something, the something he's hoping to get is going to be returned on him. He said, no, we're not going to go with, there has to be two or three witnesses. And then Paul continues. He says, I warned those who sinned. I warned those who sinned before, and I warned all the others. And I warn them now, while I am absent, as I did when I was present on my second visit. That's the visit that didn't go well at all. That was the unplanned visit, in which he did everything he could to straighten out whatever was going on. And you kind of get the idea they laughed and mocked and nobody wanted to listen and he left very discouraged. So I warn those who sinned before and all the others and I warn them now while I'm absent, as I did when I was present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. And that sounds pretty serious. That's meant to sound serious. since and he's now here's where he's going with this in verse three, since what you seem what you're seeking, is proof that Christ is speaking in me. Now we get a sense of really what the charge is. Other than he's he's, tr- he's after your money, what they're doing is they're saying, "Yeah, Paul might he might have a message that sounds pretty good, but that that's not because Christ is behind it. He's just using Christ, which is of course what they're doing. Oftentimes, what people accuse others of, they are significantly guilty of." themselves they're seeking to marginalize Paul in this Uh, because he apparently is a very gentle man and a very meek man and doesn't puff himself up like they are doing those super apostles they portray that to the congregation as weakness he's really a weak man now Paul's been there twice already he's coming this third time And there's a sense in which, remember he's talking about the two or three witnesses? There's a sense in which his visits could be considered witnesses. Because that first one, he spent 18 months there. He founded that church. And if you recall, it didn't start well. And people like the leader of the synagogue, Sosthenes, led the attacks upon him. Of course, by the time he writes the first letter of the Corinthians, Sothenes is in the church. Actually, at that point, he's with Paul off in Ephesus or wherever, writing back to the church. The second time didn't go well, and now this third time he's coming. And this third time, he's telling them, you asked for this, and if I have to come again, and I am coming again, you're going to receive what you deserve. He says, if I come again, I will not spare them. Talking about those that have been undermining his ministry. John MacArthur commenting on this. When I refer to John MacArthur, I'm almost always, particularly in this episode, I'm almost always referring to the commentary that Brother Walt gave me when he realized I didn't have one. See, if if I'd have mentioned that from the pulpit a year ago, You have no idea how much John MacArthur you'd have (laughs) heard. Because he's a trusted source (laughs) on so much. And he has the testimony of 30 or 40 years of ministry. Now, I'm not saying I agree with it; I, I disagree with him on some significant issues. But man, what a wise man. What a biblically sound man on so many others. MacArthur says... It comes down to this, if they don't repent, they will find him not as they wish he was, but as he truly is. He's Christ's man. What's he talking about doing to them? The same thing that he recommended or that he commanded to be done to that man in 1 Corinthians 5. They'll be put out of the church. They'll be treated the way they act, as though they were unbelievers. He's not being unkind to them. He's he's, he's just not treating them like co-heirs with Jesus Christ anymore, because they're not acting like they are. He is indeed handing them over to Satan. Well, what if they're believers? Well, that too is the point if you go back and look look at 1 Corinthians 5. He's handing them over to Satan so Satan can destroy their flesh before they do something worse and may actually deliver their souls through the process of that destruction. This is serious business. Maybe they'll come to their senses and repent if it comes to that. Of course, that isn't the only time Paul's done this. In his first epistle to Timothy, which we'll get to in the coming months, I trust, Paul's writing to Timothy, who's likely at Ephesus at that point. And in 1 Timothy 1.18, he says, you know, I'm charging you with this. I, I entrust you with this charge, Timothy. You're my child in the faith. But in accordance with the prophecies that had previously been made about you, that you are God's man for this time and place, wage the good warfare. Hold faith and a good conscience, but reject those who have made shipwreck of their faith. Now, Timothy's in Ephesus. You're going to have to reject those who have made shipwreck of their faith. And then Paul throws out a couple of examples from his ministry. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And as a result of those that made shipwreck of their faith... I handed them over to Satan so that they would learn not to blaspheme. Well, now he's writing to the Corinthians. And he writes, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but he said, I'm still really in the middle of verse 3. You think Christ's power is evident in these personalities and the eloquence of those that are encouraging you to disregard my teaching? You say it. it's really obvious because look how powerful the impact of their words is. God's really using these people. And, and look at our congregation, how gifted we are because they're here. Well, if you go back to the opening paragraphs of 1 Corinthians, Paul said, you guys are, you're more gifted than either church. You're gifted in every possible way. So this isn't a new thing. Paul recognizes this is a gifted church and it didn't come about because these false teachers came in. And Paul's going to say, what you're, what you're overlooking is that's really not how God's power is demonstrated. the fact that you were already pretty wealthy, that you already had some, some important people, that you had some people with some education, that you were in a civil, you were in a, a culturally cosmopolitan city. That's, that's kind of granted those things were already there. That's not how the power of God works. The power of God, the conclusion of verse two works this way. Christ. Yes, he's not weak in his dealing with you. He's powerful among you. But he is working among you. And in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 30 and 30, the evidence is a lot of you, because you obviously aren't listening and doing things right around the Lord's table, you are weak and sickly, and a great number of you are dead. You want You, you want to see how God works? Because you... Haven't been obedient to the scripture. Many of you are sick. Many of you are weak. And a great number of you are dead. Part of the instruction for preparation for the Lord's table. Verse 4. Christ was crucified in weakness. But he lives by the power of God. He wrote the Romans in Romans 4.25. He was delivered up for our trespasses, but he was raised up for our justification. The resurrection life that Christ lives, he lives by the power of God. Now he is God. But he attained that. uh, Attained this new relationship by surrendering and submitting his own will to the Father's will. Remember in the garden when he says, not my will but thine be done? It already expressed his will, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, let it, but not my will. Thy will be done. And Paul's kind of comparing the weakness by which he's being betrayed to that. He says the weakness that you despise in me is the kind of weakness that Christ exhibited when he sacrificed himself for you. He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He writes to the Philippians, in Philippians 2. He was born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Even to the point of death, even to the death on the cross. That's why God so highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that's above every other name. So that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he says in the conclusion of verse 4, Okay, so we're weak, but we're weak in Christ. He said a number of times, The ministry that he's going through, he ministers in fear. He ministers in trembling. He ministers in pain, in sorrow. Remember that long list of things he endured in the ministry? The beatings, the betrayals. The the fear of robbers, the fear on the road, the fear on the, in the cities, the the rivers he had to cross, the beatings he endured, the constant burden and care for the churches. Yeah, that was, he didn't look like much. He just persevered. But in all those things he was going through, and and all the time it looked like not much was going on. The rest of 4 B says that didn't hinder God's power at all from flow, flowing through him to accomplish God's purpose so he says in, in dealing with you we're just we're just following the Lord and working in the power of God he's already written to them in first in second Corinthians 12:10 that what I'm When I'm the weakness, when I'm the weakest, I am. When when I look like I'm absolutely nothing, that's when I'm the strongest. Is that I'm content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities because when I'm weak, then I am strong. Paul is saying to the church, in essence, listen. I have divine authority. I was called personally by the risen Christ. No doubt they've heard the story. They've heard his testimony. This ministry was granted to me by the Lord Jesus Christ to call the church of Corinth to repentance and to discipline those who refuse to repent within the church. The authority rests with the word of God. And I brought it to you. And I'm bringing it before you. And he, and you know, by application to every church, to our church here, to the elders of our church here. That's why he has to be, and we have to be so careful the way we preach and teach the word of God. Because it is, it is God's authority. And misused, it can do great damage to the body of Christ. But it must be applied to the body of Christ. I mentioned last week, the pastors and teachers, the elders, are, equip, are, are given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. To, to build up the body of Christ. To strengthen it. To enable it. To rightly reflect, reflect the character of God. Now, in the second paragraph of this text, which begins in verse 5. Paul is not addressing his adversaries. He's addressing what he hopes is a significant group in that church that are believers, but are being convinced, or at least susceptible to being convinced by the super false apostles. But, of course, he also thinks they, they must the power of God must be working in them. The word of God must be having impact on them. He's praying that they would be convicted by his words throughout this epistle. He's been defending the legitimacy of his ministry. He's been the one under investigation. Now he's asking those professing believers in Corinth to turn their attention to themselves. And that's where we are in this text. He, they've been questioning whether Christ is speaking through Paul. Paul is now going to challenge them to seek proof that Christ is actually in them. That's what brings us to verse 5. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. You do see, examine yourself. Test yourselves. He's calling upon them. He's calling upon us to examine the genuineness of our own salvation. Back in the instructions for preparing for the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, let a person examine himself then. And and having examined yourself, go and eat the bread and drink the cup. Because if you just examine yourself truly, you're not going to be judged. I mean, this is supposed to work. It's supposed to, it's supposed to be for your good. The fact that we do the Lord's table once a month means we can keep very short accounts with the Lord. If we judge ourselves, and examine ourselves, confess our sins, we benefit every time. So, what should we be looking for as the marks of a genuine saving faith? Is it that we once prayed a prayer like your kids did? Like you led your kids to do? Because in those days they would kind of do what you told them to do, particularly if they were kind of instant or scared. You know, did you walk an aisle? Have you been baptized? Is is that the mark? Have you joined? Do you attend a church? Do you know the gospel? Do you really know the basic facts about Jesus? Do you believe there's a God? Do you experience conviction when you sin? Outwardly, at least, are you generally perceived to be a very moral person? You know, those are all good things. But none of them, not a one of them, is is a mark of authentic faith. Not a one. Nor I would hasten to add, and I do hasten to add this, are the kind of church attendees that are listed in those five or six categories in the article that I sent. I think everybody in this church. Everybody sitting here today over the last day or two. Uh, Even even in that particular article, the, the author of that article says... I don't mean to imply that people in the first three categories are unbelievers. And I wrote, and I've talked to other people in our congregation who would confess equally well in my pre-Christian, but also in my Christian life. I've kind of been in all those categories. But if you read the article, and if you haven't, I encourage you to read it. Ask yourself this. Why wouldn't a believer desire to be in the category that loves Jesus and his people, that attends church because the New Testament commands it, because they love to hear God's word preached, because they yearn to meet Christ at his table? That they Because they know they need God-centered reorientation and that worship provides that. Because they cannot conceive rightly of a life of following Christ that doesn't include fellowshipping with his bride, the church of the living God. Because they know the family of God is absolutely essential to Christian living. It's not optional to grow in Christ. Hmm. Going back to all those other things that are wonderful things, you do understand the demons believe in God. That doesn't save them, but they do believe in God. At least they have the good sense to tremble about it. They know more than you can imagine about God. And they are convicted that, that His word is truth. They're terrified about God's judgment. They have an overwhelming sense of guilt. They know they deserve it. Now, I'm not saying they're not heavily involved in religious activities because that's their goal in life, in a sense, to get people away from the worship of the one true God in purity of the Spirit. They're seeking to destroy the people of God. But they know Jesus. There was an unclean spirit in the first chapter of Mark that said, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us, knowing he could? He said, I know who you are. I know you're the Holy One of God. There were two men afflicted with demons in Matthew 8, 29, and they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? See they know all about church life, particularly the American concept of it. The walk an aisle, pray a prayer, sign a card, recite a few things, pray with the preacher or one of the elders or a deacon, somebody, make sure you get the offering offering envelopes on the way out, because now you're a church member, you're on your way. And I'm not against any of those things except your confidence better not be in them. What are the marks of genuine faith? I'll give you at least three, but these are certainly not all inclusive. Our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.3, said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's referring to an awareness, an overwhelming sense of our own sinfulness. You come, to the, you come to the previous hour that Mike's teaching through on the Ten Commandments, and hour by hour by hour, you, it will be ground into you. And I mean, in the right sense of that, just, just how difficult it is to keep the Ten Commandments. That we all figure we got most of them anyway. You don't have any of them, you haven't given it enough thought. The answer is to recognize what that means. You're helpless before God. Isn't it a wonderful thing that God has made a way for you to be right with Him? That comes about. You, you come to that conclusion week after week after week. We're only three commandments into it. we got seven to go, so you've got plenty of time to get on board. An overwhelming sense of your own sinfulness is essential. Secondly, Again in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be satisfied. An internal desire to be right with God that causes you, despite the way you used to be, to be uncomfortable with your former life and uncomfortable with turning towards sin. Now, I'm not saying you don't turn towards sin, but you don't do it. you don't do it the same way. I mean, even Paul the things that I know I shouldn't do, I do. The things I know I ought to do, I don't do. Increasingly, the impact of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, well, you've read you shouldn't murder or you shouldn't commit adultery. No, and all of those, as soon as he, he took you to one of those commands, he then turned around and internalized it. I said, but wait! It's, it's not really what you're doing outside. It's what's going on inside. You know, you read, don't murder. Inside, don't hate. When you get right down to it, love your enemy. Uh, don't commit adultery. Don't lust after something or someone. Don't, in other words, don't even look and desire that which you're not entitled to. Now you see that internalizes those commandments. But it elevates them to the place where, I don't know how I can go through life and do this. You can't. That's the point. You can't. You're going to have to be delivered from yourself. You're going to have to die to self and live to Christ. You're going to have to be a new creation in Christ. Those old things, those old ways of thinking responded to the simian eye of life in a fallen world. are going to have to pass away. And you become a new creation, a new creature in Christ and walk in newness of life. It's the baptismal formula, identifying ourselves with Christ's death and then being identified in his resurrection. So it's an overwhelming sense of our own sinfulness an internal desire for a righteousness, not our own. And lastly, out of Luke six forty-six, and the Lord's asked, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? A willing submission to divine authority. We all know what that means. That means you're not going to get to do what you want to do. It's pretty simple. I mean, God has a better plan anyway. But you like your plan. And you're comfortable with your plan. A willing submission to divine authority will result in a lifestyle... That is increasingly marked by obedience. Give you text. 1 John 2 verses 3 through 5. Let's see how clear John speaks here. By this we know that we've come to know him. The Lord Jesus Christ. If we keep his commandments. Not a lot of wiggle room there. Whoever says I know him and doesn't keep his commandments. He's a liar. And the truth's not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is being perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. Now, there's, there's three good things to think about. So Paul says, examine yourself. Touch yourself on this. Is this, what, is this what's going on in and through your life? In concluding that verse, verse 5, he says, Don't you realize, it's it's, it's worded a little different ESV, uh, or do you not realize, but really what he's saying is, don't you realize this about yourself? That Jesus Christ is in you? Many of you neglected the reality that as a Christian, Jesus Christ indwells you. The Spirit of God indwells you. The Father indwells you in a sense. That you are His. You were bought with a price. Of course, he does raise the possibility that you would fail to meet the test. But I want to offer this to you. The language that Paul uses when he says test yourself and examine yourself, the structure of the Greek implies that he expects a positive answer, that you will pass the test. But you do live in a fallen world and no more fallen than Corinth was. So there are things to be dealt with. Now, speaking to the Corinthian church, particularly to those who he, he really believes have a genuine faith, but they are struggling, Paul points out that genuine faith that you have, that's the proof I'm really an apostle of Jesus Christ because I'm your spiritual father. I'm the one that brought the gospel here. I'm the one that was led by the Holy Spirit here. And you know the journey I took to get here. It involved prison in Philippi. It involved being run out of town after three weeks in Thessalonica. It involved going to Berea, where they were more noble and they listened to me and they checked the scripture to make sure I was telling the truth. And then being run out of town there because Jews came down from Thessalonica. It led me to Athens, where I spent time and I was really depressed because everywhere you look in Athens, there's a false god, there's a false idol. You know, I, I tried to help them. They, they thought I was here with something new to hear. And then when they heard, when they heard I believe in the resurrection from the dead, they laughed and mocked and scorned. By the time I got to Corinth, I was so discouraged, I was ready almost to quit the ministry. And then the Lord appeared to me in a vision of the night and said, don't be afraid, Paul. Nobody's going to hurt you. Nobody's going to harm you. Continue to speak the word. Because I have many people in this city. It's almost like Paul saying, you're among those people the Lord had before you knew it and before I knew it. And if you're a believer today, he's telling those Corinthians, that in a sense is the proof that God sent me. And you're listening to people that say, God's not with me. Think that through. It says in verse 6, I hope, meaning I trust, I sincerely believe that you will find out, that you will come to the absolute assurance that you haven't failed the test. He's he's really confident about this. But to go on in verse 7, and this this moves very quickly from this point on. We pray to God that you may not do wrong, that you won't even allow it to appear that you haven't met the test. And I want you to understand, he's saying, I don't want you to do any of this just so I'll look good. Because this is not about me. This is not about building me up at all. I'm not the one who's due to be built up. You're not either. Jesus Christ is. We want you to do what's right. Whether it looks like I failed or not. Verse 8. It's impossible for me, Paul says, to do anything against the truth, against the gospel. I'm actually I'm actually pretty satisfied when I'm perceived as weak and you're perceived as strong. I don't care if it looks like I've failed. I don't care if it looks like nothing's been done. He could say, you might go all the way back to that first epistle, in that first chapter of the epistle, when I pointed out, you know that, and not many of you are what i'd call mighty by the world's standards either not many of you are wise not many are powerful not many are noble but that's the way god works he chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise so if you think i'm being foolish well that's the way god works he chooses he chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong he chooses what's low and despised in the world even things that the world has no use for but he does it to bring to nothing the things that are. And this is also no human being can boast in the presence of God. Anything of eternal value that is ever done in your life, in this church, from this pulpit, God gets all the glory. It wouldn't have been done if he hadn't done it. That, that, that's absolutely critical. So Paul says, what I'm praying for is that you'll, you'll repent. You'll, you'll be restored to the, to the reality of who you are in Christ. He's a lot less concerned for his reputation than for their spiritual welfare. So he says, this is the reason, verse 10, that I'm writing these things while I'm not there. You know, I'd rather you got this letter in advance. And when he says these things, he's he's probably talking at least about chapters 10, 11, 12, and now 13. Because those are hard chapters. So that when I come, I won't have to be as severe in my use of the authority the Lord has given me. Because he gave me that authority, verse 10 concludes, for building up. I mean, the biggest reason that I'm an apostle of Christ is to build you up. Not to tear down if necessary, I have the authority to do that, but that's not what the primary goal is. expect that Ephesian letter. And now we move to that third paragraph. this this it is beautiful the way Paul concludes this. He looks out a body of believers. And they're, they're all different. And they're all different levels of maturity. And they, some of them got issues with one another and little quirks and things like this. Everyone's an individual. And he's not sure where everybody is, but he's sure where some people are. And what he says he is. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for reconciliation. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace with one other words, dwell together in Christian love. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another. Enjoy being with one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It's a, it was a sign of the peace of God between you and upon you. And he says... You know, he's probably writing from Macedonia, which is the dirt poor area that's been supporting him while he's there. And he said, All the saints greet you. You're not alone. There's, there's believers in other churches everywhere. We're, we're, we're all in this together. And we may not look like much, but we are the greatest power that God has on this lost earth. And how does he conclude? Well, you hear it every week. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that though he was rich. Yet for your sake. He became poor. So that you. By or through his poverty. Might become rich. The grace of God. And the love of God. Which once set upon you. Once upon set upon us. By the grace of God. Neither height. Nor depth nor anything in all creation can separate us from, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that one Spirit by which we were all baptized into one body, whether we're Jews, Gentiles, white, black, tall, short, whether we're bond or free, we've all been made to drink of that one Spirit. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God, may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let us pray. For how good, how gracious, how merciful you are to us to come to us at our point of need. Needs that most of us don't recognize until they're illuminated. Lord, you come to us with a gentleness that surprises us. You come come to us with a grace that we obviously don't deserve. You come to us out of love, which we haven't earned and can't repay, but which we can share. We thank you, Lord, for one another in the body of Christ. And we thank you, Lord, the opportunity we have to grow in Christ together. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.